0: I have to confess I'm sorely tempted to read a passage from Tolkien today it's sort of the obligation of Presbyterian preachers to do that but I'm gonna be strong Um, but we're continuing on the book of Mark chapter 4 and I want to set the stage for this because this passage drops right into the middle of the section we began last week I want to get the tone and maybe I'll explain where that Tolkien passage came in because we saw last time Jesus' ministry had picked up considerable momentum. The number of people following Jesus had grown now to the size of large crowds. So large, in fact, that Jesus had to go out into a boat to speak to them all. Now, Step back for a minute. Imagine a mixture of people in these crowds. The disciples were certainly there. Probably those, probably the bulk of those were those who were caught up in what Jesus was saying, miracles he was performing. And then there were those who saw him as a threat, who is this guy? And actually, as we've seen so far to this point, that, that the, the opposition party, the religious leadership, had not, just gone, had not just questioned him, but had moved to the point where some were actually seeking to have him killed. And so at this point, so a large crowd, a mixed group of people, you have really good things happening. At this point, Jesus begins using parables, stories, and speaking to the crowds about the kingdom of God. Uh, we, we have a particular view of parables. They're, they're stories with a point. We, we talk about how they have imagery that's, that was very common to the people of those days. But what's interesting about this is that even though he used things that were common to them and spoke plainly, at the same time, he was by no means clear. Even his disciples had questions. What are you doing? What are you talking about? This parable of the sower, who's that for? What does this mean? It's strange. There's there's a number of things. When you read through the Gospels carefully, you realize that Jesus doesn't follow form. He doesn't make sense a lot. Here, when he has all these people ready, where he could convince the religious leadership, where he could speak truth to the people who are interested in what he's doing, but maybe not committed yet. And certainly, with his disciples, he takes this other track that, that doesn't lead to clarity, it leads to confusion. What does this mean? it wasn't just the parable of the sower, it was many parables, Mark tells us, that he had. It, it reminded me, so here's, here's my, my nod to Tolkien. It reminded me of, of early on in The Lord of the Rings, where Bilbo has this party celebrating his birthday. Huge event, great party, big banquet, everybody's eating, had a great time, presents for everybody. It's just, just a big blowout. And then he gets up to speak. And along the way, he says, I don't know, half of you as well as I think I should, and I don't like half of you as much as I, I don't like half of you half as much as you deserve. And they're like, okay, what's going on here? <laughs> I thought this was I thought we were going to have fun here. And then he concludes with, and then farewell, and disappears. It went from, we thought we knew what we were here for, to what on earth is going on? I think there's something of like that here in this passage, which Again, from a standpoint of, if you want to communicate, if you want to get your message across, what are you doing, Jesus? What's the purpose of this? So when his disciples ask him, he explains that his lack of clarity was intentional. I didn't want them to understand. I was being opaque for a reason. The parables were for the outsiders, to keep them in the dark. The disciples, on the other hand, were given the secret of the kingdom, and, and to them, Jesus would speak plainly and explain what it was about. But, but just to pause at that point, I mean, is that, does that correspond to the picture of Jesus that you have? Isn't Jesus the, the one, this, this wonderful man, come from God, claims to be God, who'd make things easy for everyone, is throwing all sorts of obstacles in the path? He's doing the opposite of what we'd expect. So What, what is he doing here? And, and he explains a little bit in the previous section and, and now in our passage today, Jesus has more to say about this point. Um, and so where we're going to focus our time. So now you may stand as we read from the Lord's word. And then I'll, I'll pray for us. Chapter 4, verse 21. And he, Jesus, said to them, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your blessing on your word this morning. I ask for your help as I preach this word, this challenging passage, that you give light to our eyes and you open us, open our minds to understand what is being said, said here, as well as to open up our hearts, Lord, that we would receive what you have to say to us through your word, uh, that we would be humble and attentive this morning to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May be seated. There's a couple of challenges with this passage. One is that it's covering territory that was covered last week in Craig's sermon. But, But the bigger challenge is that this is a passage that we've heard the words before. This is a familiar tune, if you will. We've heard these words, but in a different context. And that context that we're probably all thinking of comes from Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is almost the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. There he's encouraging his disciples. Let your light shine. Here he's saying the light has been hidden. And here's why. So so how do we understand this passage? I want to preach the Sermon on the Mount passage. But this is the passage God has for us. So so what is Jesus saying here? Um, First first point that we can gain from this is this. That the kingdom of God has been hidden from some. Talking about the kingdom of God, I think we need to understand something. The kingdom of God falls into the category of what we call special revelation. We, we, theologians talk about general revelation versus special revelation. The Bible teaches that God has made himself known in all sorts of ways through what he has created. That we can see, that we can, we can glimpse something of the nature, character, existence of God and what we see around us. But then there are things about God that we are not able to know. The things that he has kept hidden from us. But also just the bare fact that God is beyond us. It's hard for us to accept. We we are inherently inclined to create God in a way that makes sense to us, aren't we? We start from where we are. When we talk about God as a father, we begin where? Usually with our own fathers. When we think of God's omniscience his all-knowingness, his omnipotence, his power. Don't we start with what is familiar to us? That's why we have superheroes, right? That's why the Greek gods looked the way they were. They, that's where we start. We build up from our ground level. But, but what the Bible teaches us is that we have no understanding of fatherhood apart from God. We have no understanding of knowledge or power apart from God. He is the standard. And and be blunt, we simply lack the equipment to grasp that. We, we we don't have the ability to peer into the depths of the wisdom of God on our own. Nor do we have the equipment to understand what we might see. He is beyond us. He is unlike us. He's glorious. He dwells in unapproachable light. Anytime a person in Scripture is given a picture of God in a vision, it's always approximations, right? He he was like gold. He was like burning fire. He was like a rainbow. He was like these things. He's not those things. But you can tell the people who are witnessing things are scrambling to describe what they are seeing, and they can't. It's beyond us. We, We can't do it. And so... The only way that we can know anything about Him is when God chooses to make them known, which is what we call special revelation. He does that in the scriptures. He did that through the prophets, and ultimately, and is really the, the nature of Jesus' earthly ministry over all, through Jesus Himself. He is God's special revelation. So, on the one hand, we can all see that Jesus died, general revelation. But the special revelation is when the scriptures declare that he died for our sins. You don't see that looking at the cross. You don't see that in any of the descriptions of what happened. It's what God said happened at that point. But we wouldn't know that unless he told us. So so there's a special revelation having to do with the kingdom of God that has been withheld from some. Now, historically speaking, the news about this kingdom had been hidden in the sense that the prophets had not been given the entire picture beforehand of what God was doing. First Peter points, or Peter points to this from 1 Peter 1. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So big picture-wise, that part of the special revelation is done over time. God parceled it out over time. The prophets of old had some inclination that God was doing something. Isaiah, when he penned Isaiah 53... He he had this picture, this vision of the suffering servant that was Christ, but did not understand who this person was or when he would come about, try as he might, until it was revealed in this child who became a man, who was born in all places, of all places, Nazareth, the shores of North Galilee. He was the one who fulfilled that. They longed to say that. Even the angels longed to see that. But it was kept from them to be revealed now. Bringing it back to this passage, however, Jesus seemed to be talking about the kingdom being kept secret or hidden from a particular group of people. And that, as a matter of judgment. And as we saw last week, Jesus explained this by quoting from Isaiah 6. Uh, I won't take the time to read it in full, but but I encourage you to read that. It's a terrifying passage when you think about it. Here's God taking the opportunity to speak to his people. This is the the great passage where Isaiah is in the throne of God, sees God, the the angels, the seraphim, declaring holy, holy, holy. Isaiah's lips are touched and cleansed, purified. He's given a message. Go and preach this message, but it's to harden your people not turn them from their sins. This is the beginning of their judgment, that they will hear my words and be sent away, not gathered and forgiven. Jesus takes that idea and refers to it here. And here it seems clear that he was referring to those among the religious leadership who stood opposed to him. Think about them for a moment. I've made the argument in the past that I I think on the one hand, we should be very sympathetic to the Pharisees and the religious leaders that what they saw they were doing was being faithful to God. They were looking the whole course of, of Israel's history and saying, we are where we are. We are under the Roman Empire's boot. We are scattered throughout the world because Israel had been unfaithful to God and continues to be unfaithful to God. And the way back is faithfulness, keeping the law, Purifying ourselves, our hearts and our minds and our actions, staying away from that which is impure. And God promised in the prophets, didn't He? That He would come again, that He'd forgive us, He'd send His Messiah, His anointed one, to gather His people together, to lift Israel up and to deal with her enemies. So, so there was a very purposeful and right hearted approach to what the religious leaders were about. You know, with, with all the proper qualifications for the corruption that, that inevitably comes into the, these different groups. But at heart, there was a, a right hearted reform movement that Israel would be ready for the Lord's return, that God would come and forgive them. And yet, the people at the head of this reform movement were done with Jesus, weren't they? They were done listening to him. They had already rejected his authority. They had already rejected his words. They had already rejected his signs. In fact, they want him dead. Think think about that for a minute. Just think about those rejections. Who does that leave them sounding like? It's an Old Testament figure that, that, that rejected the authority of God's messenger, that rejected his words, that rejected his signs. Who do these religious leaders that were leading Israel in righteousness sounding like but Pharaoh? There was nothing, in fact, that Jesus could conceivably say or do to change their minds. And so they were unable to hear or to see. This idea is picked up in John's gospel, John chapter 9. This is a great story of Jesus healing the man born blind. Great exchange between the man and the religious leaders who rejected that. Jesus could possibly have done this because we know he's not from God. The blind man is like, this is incredible. You say this man's not from God, and yet you say that God can only heal blindness. So putting these two together, somebody's got this wrong. Because I can see. And they ran him off. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He, The blind man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may, be, may, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The irony That these were the people who should have recognized him first. They had spent their lives preparing for the Messiah to come. But in their eyes, Jesus was the wrong Messiah. He was a false prophet. He was rejected. And in the course of that, all that they had done to be able to see clearly blinded them. And they were kept from seeing. If it could happen... To devout followers of God then, is it conceivable that could happen to us today? Is it possible that we could do the same thing? That as we live before God, as we anticipate his return, as we seek to understand what God calls us to as his people as we understand our role in this world, is it possible that we could build up an expectation of Jesus and of God and what he's doing that would blind us to the actual Jesus? And we wouldn't be able to see it. I think that's part of Jesus' overall purpose in the parables, at least in part, is to provoke that thought. Take heed of yourselves lest you fall. Search your hearts. Listen to me. What do you see? What do you hear? But the next part of this passage, let me read this again. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nor is anything secret except to come to light. That the, there's a purpose in part to keep this from certain people, but at the same point, it's hidden to be eventually revealed. So, so I think there's three possibilities here. I think, I think first of all, and, and I, I'm not saying that we have to choose from them. It might be all three. Jesus, first of all, has to be talking about his own role as the messenger of the kingdom. This is his mission, to, to make known what has been hidden. You didn't know this before. You didn't know who the Messiah was. You may have been like everybody else and thought the Messiah would come from Bethlehem or Jerusalem or some notable city, that he'd be of a priestly class. Not, not this guy from, from nowhere who has no lineage, nothing that we should pay attention to except, well, I mean, yeah, you can claim Joseph to David, but that's not an unimpressive that's not an impressive line of David there to the carpenter in Nazareth. But he's the one who is revealing the kingdom. And maybe doing so in the way that Luther saw it. Luther Luther had this really interesting um, template to look at the scripture. The the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. The theology of the glory is, is the natural religious tendency of humanity. When we look at God, when we look at what Jesus is doing... We on ourselves that 's not how we'd write the story. again, building from our ground up, from where we are up, we expect God to be better than the best of us, doing all sorts of great things, toppling kingdoms, mowing people down, destroying the enemies. But God, Luther says, reveals the glory of the cross, that his power is made manifest in a broken body on a tree. there 's your king saving the world. Not with the sword, but by dying. Who would have come up with that? That's what Paul, I think, means when he says the wiz the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. And Jesus is revealing that this kingdom that has been hidden to the wisdom of men is now being made manifest. Second, I think it's Jesus also perhaps pointing to the fact that one day all will be revealed. What has been hidden now will be revealed. We will see Jesus as he truly is. He will be completely vindicated. And all, whether we believe in him or not, will be forced to confess that he is indeed King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Almighty God. What is hidden will be revealed, be made manifest. Or, lastly, and and maybe I'm being a, a little bit too wishful in my thinking, that this actually does connect to Matthew 5. That Jesus is perhaps also hinting at the role that his disciples will play as heralds of the kingdom. Maybe the way that Matthew remembered these words and said, in that case, Jesus is anticipating our role in this. To shine his lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. A generation, by the way, that has been blinded to the gospel. Do you understand that as you live in the world? That, that the world does not know Christ, not because they're stupid, but because they've been blinded. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The world cannot behold Christ on their own because they are blind. Do we interact with the world without knowledge? Or do we just get angry at them and how frustrating they are and how wicked they are? They're wicked because they do not know Christ, but they are also stuck because they can't know Christ. Someone needs to tell them. Someone needs to show them. Their eyes need to be opened. Who's going to do that? That's our job, church. We're we're the ones who are sent out to make the hidden known, to reveal the secret of the kingdom. Not to hide from them. Certainly not to complain about them. I mean, it's it's always a legitimate point to make. At this point, how did he deal with us? Did we discover Christ in our own ingenuity? Were we willing to go along with God from birth? Were we easy saves for Christ? None of us were. Were we? In fact, in, in our weaker moments, we, we wish that we didn't have this burden of salvation because it obliges us to obey him, to turn from the world that we love, to turn from the things that we love, to wholehearted devotion to him. And yes, we gain life, but we become these weirdos in the world. How do we see the world? How, how are we responding to the blindness of the world today? Are we confusing our role that we are sent into the world to judge the world? We're not. That's not our role right now. Our role is to bring the message of Christ, the message of the kingdom, to call people to repentance in the hope that they will be saved, to pray earnestly. For these deadened hearts and these blind eyes to be opened and to be softened. That may, they might see what we see and be saved. How, how well do we recognize our part in that revealing of what has been hidden? Last, last point here. To, to sum the rest of this passage. Is to say that the only hope of seeing this kingdom... Is to listen to Jesus. He's the key focal point. He must be taken seriously, not just as a good guy or a gifted speaker, but as he as who he claims to be. I am the son of God. I am the holy lord. I'm the creator of the universe. I'm your savior. And I am the lamb who was slain. He speaks with an authority that we do not really begin to comprehend. Certainly not as Americans. As bad as we do with authority anyways. But he speaks with such an absolute authority that to question it, to ignore it, to turn away from it, to treat it as advice... ...is a high-handed sin of its own. We must take what he says seriously... He is speaking the truth. Peter recognizes in in John's gospel. Where else will we go? You have the words of life. Some, something was revealed to Peter that he understood what was at stake here. He's speaking the truth, and then, more we struggle to understand or even agree, we ought to, like the disciples. Go to him. So, this listening, this taking seriously, is not the only part. It's, it's the humility to give Jesus the deference that he deserves to speak truthfully about what we don't understand. Our lack of understanding is not his problem, it's ours. We don't get it. We don't understand. It doesn't make sense to us. The response should be Jesus, teach us. Help me. Keep me from fighting against you, keep me, keep me from setting at odds your words against each other, or rejecting you because you don't seem right, you don't seem fair, you don't seem loving. You don't care about people. Help me to repent of those wrong thoughts. And as we seek him like this, with this humble trust, he he will help us to see who he is and where he's leading us and how we're going to get there. The only hope of seeing is to listen. Are we listening? Are we calling others to listen? Have we come up with some other scheme to do this, whether for ourselves or in preaching the gospel to others, that it just falls short? No wonder people are confused about Christ. We haven't listened. We thought we could do him better. We thought we could improve on his stuff. But the call of this passage is to humble ourselves, to seek his face, and then to close our mouth and receive what he has to say to us. Let's pray. Lord, we are a silly, small, limited people. You have made us in your image. You have called us to amazing things. We are so small. We're so fragile. We don't know what we don't know. We can't see what we are blind to. And in our arrogance, Lord, we pretend otherwise. Lord, may each of us come with humble hearts to you to confess our ignorance, to acknowledge our blindness, and to appeal to you to give us new eyes and a new heart that we might see, that we might understand, that we might trust and obey. Lord, as you have opened up the possibility of this great new chapter of ministry in the city with a new building, Lord, that we would recall that our purpose here is to shine as lights, to take to others this gospel that is hidden to unbelievers and make it known. To to persuade them to listen, to help them to see what they cannot see, that they might turn to you as well. Give us patience, Lord, with those who have been blinded. Give us gentleness of spirit and of words that we might encourage them to follow you rather than turn them away with our misguided attempts to carry out your judgment. That's not our role. May our lips be full of the gospel that gives life and light to those who are blind. To the glory of your name. Amen.